You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. We're in Romans chapter 12 today. We will uh, go ahead and read verses 9 through 13 today. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence, fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this very practical uh, exhortation in the scripture, uh, Lord, we just pray that uh, you would press the word into our hearts Uh, work it out in our lives, bring it to bear on our souls. Lord, we're in desperate need for the transformation of our mind, of our heart, of our lives, all by the word of God, by the spirit of God. And Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us in power, that you'd confront us in our negligence and our, um, Lord, and in our wavering. And Lord, that you would just replace just our failures with victory, with truth, with um, power, all by the Spirit. We pray that if there's anybody in this room today that has been living for the kingdom of darkness, that by your grace today, you transfer them to the kingdom of light. Lord, that they'd be born again um, by, your, by your Spirit living in them. Um, do a work that could only be attributed uh, to the living God as we study Romans 12, 9 through 13. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. I sort of fibbed in my prayer. I don't know if that's a sin, but um, we're not going to make it all the way through verse 13 today. So, Lord, forgive me. Um, The book of Romans, 47 weeks into it. Can you believe it? It Reminded me of, uh, of our introduction. Just as we've been a year in the book of Romans, just remembering the introduction to Romans and remembering some of the church fathers and the place that Romans played in their lives Fathers like John Chrysostom, who was nicknamed by his, uh, his uh, church, uh, John Golden-Tongued. And uh, whenever John would preach a message, uh, this bishop of Constantinople, he was so incre- incredibly powerful at speaking that um, the crowd would often erupt in applause, uh, clapping for him. Uh, and so finally, one week, he had to preach a sermon against clapping during the service. Don't quit clapping at me. And of course, during that sermon, they all started clapping for him. So a useless cause, really. But uh, it was John Chrysostom, Golden Tongue John, who said he read the book of Romans through every week for 18 years straight. And, uh, and, and you just wonder, why did the Lord use a guy like that? I uh, mean, there was some diligence there to spend time in this awesome book. Uh, Romans was used in the conversion of St. Augustine. Augustine was a young man who had, was weighed down with all kinds of sin. His autobiography even shares that it was sexual sin. And as he was in, involved in an immoral relationship, uh, he was sitting in a park just just knowing that he was in rebellion against God, uh, having a Bible there in his hand. He didn't know what to do when little kids began running around him in this park singing a popular children's song that went, pick it up and read it through, pick it up and read it through. And so he opened up to the book of Romans, he read through it, and there below the tree was saved and delivered from a life of debauchery, totally transformed. Another founding father in the church, uh, or father of our faith, uh, Martin Luther, was uh, someone we know as being the great reformer and, uh, and breaking apart uh, from the Catholic Church during the Reformation period and coming back to uh, the scripture being our authority and the gospel of grace um, being prominent in the Christian faith. But uh, it was Martin Luther that was uh, just so overwhelmed with works-based righteousness, 
feeling that he never measured up to God. Uh, and so he would, as a Catholic monk, spend time in his room whipping himself at night, uh, starving himself, and living a life of celibacy, feeling that maybe by doing those things, he would be right with God. He would be forgiven for his sins. And as he made a journey across Europe to Italy to kiss the steps of the Vatican and hopefully make some sort of penance before God, um, he stopped one stormy night at a, at a house full of other monks where a Bible was open with the book of Romans, and he read the quote out of Habakkuk in the book of Romans that says that the just shall live by faith. And it was there that he heard the Lord saying, Martin, the just shall live by faith. And he abandoned his trip to Italy and went back home to Germany. And it was then that he was born again. He'd been confronted and captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the book of Romans. And it was then that God began the great reformation period um, back in the 1600s. So uh, book of Romans, just instrumental in all kinds of revivals of church history. Uh, Calvary Chapel experienced a great revival back in the 1960s called the Jesus Movement. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it, but uh, the Jesus Movement down in Costa Mesa, Cal Mike, Mike, don't, you can't fool anybody, man. <laughs> Jesus Movement was when a bunch of hippies and surfers got saved. And, uh, and guys coming in with just their swim shorts on and flip-flops coming into, you know, sh uh, church with suits and ties and just people getting saved, revival happening. And that's basically how Calvary Chapel, um, that movement got started. And uh, the book of Romans was instrumental in the Jesus movement. I was part of a bit of a Jesus movement in Corvallis in the mid-90s when uh, <clears throat> uh, a whole bunch of kids went to a youth retreat. My sister went. I didn't go. Uh, I was a freshman in high school. And all these kids got back from the youth retreat. They had red t-shirts on. Uh, these red t-shirts said, on fire. And every one of these kids was on fire for the Lord. And, and being with them lit me on fire for the Lord. And this great revival in Corvallis, uh, among the youth led from Calvary Chapel Corvallis of 17 people um, becoming about a thousand people within about a year and a half where kids were preaching the gospel in their schools, standing on picnic tables, having Bible studies, preaching in the classrooms, kids getting saved, bringing their families to church, families that were parents getting divorced, uh, them all getting saved and revival taking place. And many a time, uh, me and my friends would just spend sleepovers, not playing video games, but reading through the book of Romans. Uh, all night long, we'd read through the book of Romans, and then we'd read through the book of Revelation, and we just, we owned Romans. We loved the book of Romans, uh, and it's a special place to many of my friends and me, uh, this book, Romans. So, uh, and so as we go through this book, we're just expectant for God to do a work in Calvary Chapel of Crook County, um, and he's been doing a work, and we're expectant that he'll continue the work uh, of growing his kingdom here in Prineville in 2012 and 13. Donald Barnhouse said, if there's one book that I could have in the whole Bible, it would be the book of Romans. And if a Christian were to drop his Bible accidentally, that book should, or that Bible should open up accidentally to the book of Romans. And so, uh, you know, the early church used to have a, a, a phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Maybe you've heard of that. And uh, what they're referring to was just true revival in the church would come back to the book of Romans uh, because it just was so chock full of doctrine, as we've been learning, great doctrine, which then leads to great practical outworking and propulsion from that doctrine. And so as we've gone through the doctrinal chapters of the book, uh, we're, we're experiencing a work of the Spirit in us, a practical outworking of that doctrine. Uh, I think one reason that the book of Romans is just so uh, powerful in, in history is because the gospel is just systematically laid out in each chapter. If you know the outline of the book of Romans, it just gives you a great um, 
gospel message to preach to people. In chapters 1 through 3, you have the bad news given that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. There's not one person that's righteous or innocent in and of themselves. That's the bad news, but it doesn't end there. Then the good news comes in, in chapter 3, verse 20 through chapter 5, that we can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That all of the righteousness that we are supposed to bring to God, that we don't have, he has provided for us in his son. And then it doesn't end there. The good news goes on in chapters 6 through 8. The sanctification process in a Christian's life. That they'll be set apart from the world and transferred to the image of Christ um, by the Spirit of God. In chapters 9 through 11, we studied the doctrine of glorification where God promises righteousness and promises to make good. In chapters 12 through 16, where we're at now, we see God working out that righteousness in the life of the Christian. And so just as the gospel is systematically laid out from the fallen condition of men to God's plan of salvation and justifying that sinner as if he'd never sinned before and giving him the power to live a life that's worthy of the name of Christ and, uh, and bringing him into glory on that day when we'll see him face to face. The book is a beautiful book. And we find ourselves uh, here in chapter 12. And as we look at chapters 12 through 15 in the weeks, maybe months to come, there's this sustained exhortation to us to let love govern and shape all of our relationships. And we're really going to see this as we begin here in verse 9 of chapter 12. We're going to be exhorted in the rest of this chapter here to behave like Christians In verses 9 through 13, behave like Christians within the church. And in verses 14 through 21, behave like Christians within the world, uh, being lights to this dark generation. Uh, As we get into the text here, uh, we're reminded of the rabbis who had a way of teaching that was called stringing beads. All right, stringing beads. And just as a a woman would make a beautiful necklace of beads and drop one bead after another bead after another bead, the rabbis would often connect short, random truths together in their teachings. And here Paul does the same thing. He strings beads, beginning in verse 9, with these short, concise statements that will move all of us and spur all of us on to more love and more good works. And so let's start here in verse 9, where he says, let love be without hypocrisy. So if you could just imagine the first bead being placed on this this, uh, string of necklace here. Let love be without hypocrisy, or let love be sincere, verse 9 says. This is speaking of our love not consisting only of words, but there would be action in our love. There'd be action in living out of our love. This is love for all men. In verse 10, this love is specified to be for the brotherhood. But let it be sincere. Let it be without hypocrisy. You guys have heard that term before, or that word, hypocrite. Hypocrisy. And what it speaks of is an actor. Someone that's a play actor. Someone that's wearing a mask. Someone that's being fake and phony and pretend. But as John Stott says, you know what? The church must not turn itself into a stage. All right? This isn't Broadway here. We shouldn't be acting. We shouldn't be phony. We shouldn't be hypocritical. Love is not a theater. It belongs in the real world. And even though love, sometimes it has to speak itself in truth and it speaks itself in words that sometimes wound May God purge hypocrisy out of our love for one another, out of our love within the church. John Murray from the late 1800s was a Scottish-born Calvinist theologian who taught at uh, Princeton Seminary. And John Murray said, if love is the sum of all virtue, everything that's good and holy and pure and sacred, if love is the sum of it, and hypocrisy is the epitome of vice and sin and bondage, What a contradiction to bring these two together. Here we are in the church, 
a place that should be the sum of virtue, a place that should be the reflection of Christ, a place that should be the hands and feet of a Savior to a broken and dying world. And if we try to couple love with hypocrisy, we're walking in a major contradiction. This hypocrisy comes out in so many different ways. As the ancient uh, historian or the ancient uh, Christian writer Ovid said, when you are happy, you have many friends, but in times of trouble, you will be alone. So true, and it happens within our church. When things are good, we've got a lot of buddies there. As, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, when you've got a lot of wealth, there's a lot of people there that want to share in your wealth. But you get poor and those friends are gone. And that should not be the case. We shouldn't be fair weather friends. I was accused of that as I was at the Crook County game last week and we had a visiting friend on the Redmond side and at halftime I walked over there to say hi. Someone called me a fair weather friend in the middle of the game. It wasn't very nice. But sometimes as Christians, that's what we are. We're fair weather friends. When times are good, we're there, man. I'm there for you, brah. And the trial comes where the sin is confessed. You know, the bank account gets in the red. And we're gone. We're gone. We're not there for one another. It's song is going through my head as I was studying for this. And it's a country song. Forgive me. Thought I was safe being in Prineville. Country song by Tracy Lawrence. Not my favorite song, but it's got a great chorus that says, you find out who your friends are. Somebody's going to drop everything, run out and crank up their car, hit the gas, get there fast, never stop to think what's in it for me or it's way too far. They just show on up with their big old heart. You find out who your friends are. Yeah, you guys know that song, don't you? Find out who your friends are. (laughs) Okay. Kind of sounded like it. And you know, that's this beautiful truth of the church. When things are tough, that's really when you find out, man, this guy's love is not hypocritical. I experienced this week in a way that just, I feel, brings so much glory to the Lord. God sold my old pickup and provided a vehicle for us that fits our family in it. And it it was the only call I made on Craigslist. And it was to Boise, the only call I made, first call. I talked to this guy. As we talked, turns out, His wife's from Ben, and she lived in Prineville one time. Uh, It it turns out he's a Christian. Uh, It turns out he goes to Calvary Chapel, Boise. And as we're, you know, just like, what is God doing here? He gives me a break in the price, and he says, tell you what, I'll drive it to Prineville tomorrow for you. And he was at church this morning, okay? And... And, and he, he comes and he surprises me and he hugs me and he's got tears in his eyes. And he's like, I found a brother in the Lord. And we've hugged like 50 times, all right? So, but I just, man, it's just so cool to just see someone who is copying his Lord and Savior Jesus, who lays down his life with love for the brother, love for the sister. Is that a mark of you in any capacity, laying yourself down, for the kingdom, for the family of God. And so sometimes our love can be hypocritical and that we're only fair weather friends and we're not willing to make sacrifices for one another. There's also a hypocritical love that basically in in 2012 standards says, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's a type of love that will only speak happy things about jelly beans and rainbows and soft kittens and unicorns. But whenever somebody is in sin or has been stumbling, don't you dare talk to me about it. Don't you dare confront me in my sin. Don't you dare make me uncomfortable or I'm out of here. And I'll defriend you on Facebook. That's hypocritical love. And I was so encouraged by Luther's commentary this week who says, there are some who clearly understand and see their neighbor when he makes a mistake or sins. That is when he brings the greatest harm upon himself. And even though they have the power, they do not reprove him or warn him or correct him. Rather, they laugh at him and jest with him as if they were his best friends and did not want to offend him. But this is deceit of love. It is so crass and crude. And that's what we want. It's not love. It's crass. 
It's crude. And the wisest man that ever lived, apart from our Lord, King Solomon, said that faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you are a true friend, you will speak the truth in love. You will call somebody out on hard things. You will ask tough questions. We will exhort one another daily, as Hebrews 3.13 says, and even more as we know Jesus is coming back, as we see the day approaching. Let me tell you this. If you're part of Calvary Chapel of Crick County, you will be confronted. Sometimes in little ways. Sometimes just through a prayer that's prayed that the Holy Spirit, I don't know what's going on in your life, and the Holy Spirit knows, and he speaks into it. And perhaps it'll be an open and blatant sin and it's time for loving church discipline to take place. But we do it in obedience to the Lord for the good of the name of Jesus, for the good of the church and for the good of you. And afterward, correction yields peaceable fruits of righteousness. It yields vehement desire for the Lord in the one who's being corrected. When we walk in obedience to call one another out on our crud, Every time you come to this church, you should be corrected in some way, in some way. And if you don't want to be corrected, perhaps this isn't the place for you. Better yet, or or more intense yet, perhaps Christianity isn't the faith for you. We daily, hourly, minutely need to have the spirit of God chiseling away at the kingdom of self that we are trying to build. And he does that through iron, iron sharpening iron, through bros being each other there for each other, for calling each other out on our blind spots. Hey, did you know this? Did you think about this? I don't think you've thought this through. I'm here, man. I, have, I, know, I can see your blind spot. And because I love you, I'm going to speak it out to you. Don't run from that. Embrace that. Embrace that. And you know what? As much as much as we cry out and pray concerning this subject, we pray that it would always be done in love and it would always be done with the word of God as our authority. And so just know, if I go to Calvary Chapel of Kirk County, I'm going to be loved, I'm going to be served, I'm going to be called out on my sin and I'm going to call people out on their sin. And it's going to be done in love for the glory of God, for the glory of his bride that he loves and that he wants pure So we don't want to be the guys that only say good things just to call a man a friend. We don't want to be against love. We don't want to be deceitful or hypocritical in our love. Timothy is told by Paul that the purpose of the commandment is love. It's love from a pure heart. It's love from a good conscience. And it's love from sincere faith. So hear the first pearl, hear the first bead go down and drop in the necklace on the string. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Let it be real. Let it be faithful. Let it be self-sacrificial. And let it speak the truth in love. Abhor what is evil, the second bead. Abhor what is evil, third bead. Cling to what is good. Charles Hodge says that abhorring what is evil means we should have the highest degree of hatred on the one hand and of preserving devotion on the other hand. There should be a high degree of hatred against sin, against compromise, against evil, against any wickedness that exalts itself against the name of Christ. A simple Webster's definition would bring, would speak to that we should have an aversion towards what is evil, an abhorrence, that is hate coupled with disgust towards evil. Covetousness, oh, oh, oh. And looking for a truck, I mean, that's so easy to do. Oh, I'm gonna have the, blah, 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 blah. And I just felt the Lord just kept speaking to me, hey, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist of the abundance of things he possesses. Watch it, watch it. Okay, Lord, okay, okay. Recognizing covetousness is evil. It's wickedness. Lust of the heart. Lust of the flesh. Pride of life. Desire to see myself succeed at the expense of others. It's wickedness. And may we have an abhorrence 
coupled with hate and disgust against witchcraft, against sorcery, against idolatry, against that fluffy little kitten that we love more than we love Jesus. It's idolatry. Ah! Love the kitten. Hate the sin, right? Hate, I, I, wanted to, I was trying to try to do a little. Love the kitten, hate the kit. I don't know. Didn't work. Sorry, Lord. I got to start writing out my sermons word for word here. Don't do those things. The golden-tongued John said, for what he wants us is, or what he wants is to purify the thought and that we should have a mighty enmity, a hatred and a war against vice. Lots of young people here, sorry. Kind of been noticing it. What about your schools? What about those weekend parties where it's just, we're just going up in the woods with our four buys, you know, lighting the campfire and drinking a couple cold ones, smoking a little dope. It happens. And you guys know it. And what's the attitude that we should have towards that? Hate coupled with disgust. It's an affront to our creator. Speaking against our king and not praying for him? President Obama, have you been praying for him or have you been slandering him and having a hateful attitude? Honor the king, is what the scriptures tell me. Pray for those in authority, that's what the word tells me. So what's disobedience to that? Sin. And we should abhor it. I mean, there's just so many things that we pass off and we just become numb. It's like getting used to the smell inside of an outhouse. Also not in the notes. Okay. (laughs) So hate what is evil, cling to what is good. This word cling in the active form means to glue yourself to what is good. Glue yourself to what is good. What is good? Justice, mercy, fellowship, praise, honor, worship to the king, prayer, communion with the saints, correction, the scriptures, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is of good report. Have you glued yourself? Are you stuck to that? Luther says it's necessary that we hate in our neighbor whatever is evil without praise or fear and to cling to what is good in him without deceit or favor. Don't respect men and dishonor God. Don't fear men and dishonor God. You fear the Lord. You fear the Lord who has the ability to throw the soul and the body into the fire. In verse 10, hear the next bead slip onto the string. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. In the negative in verse 9, we have let love not be hypocritical. But the positive in verse 10 is love should be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, with Philadelphia, or with, with phileo, excuse me, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Let the highest degree of love that we would have with our own kind, our own kin, let it be shown in sincerity and tenderness as if this guy sitting next to me in the pew was my nearest relative that I grew up playing cowboys and Indians with in my backyard. I want to love that guy that way. Galatians 6.10 says, We, as much as we have opportunity, should do good to all. Amen especially to those who are of the household of faith. We feed the poor in this community. We help people out in their homeless situations. But when there's a need within the church, that need trumps the others. We're especially giving and especially loving to the church, the bride of Christ. 1 Peter 2.17 says, honor all people. Amen but love the brotherhood. There is something special about the family of God that he purchased with his own blood. Fear God and honor the king. That verse continues. In honor, giving preference. 
Hear the bead go on. In honor, giving preference. Essentially saying, I prefer you, sir. I prefer you. Yes, I will serve in this capacity in the church. Yes, I'll leave you in this area. Because you know what? I prefer you. Have the comfortable seat. Have the last beverage. Have the last chicken wing. I prefer you in honor. Instead of waiting for others to honor and respect you, you should take the lead. Why? Because Jesus did. Jesus was the initiator of this kind of love, of this kind of service. He laid his life down as an example for us. The Revised Standard Version of this verse says, Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that picture. Outdoing one another. No, I prefer you. No, I prefer you. Well, gosh, I want to prefer you. No, me. Yo, rah, rah. Big fight in the church and church split because everyone was loving each other too much. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That is a desire for yourself to succeed. But rather, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. This, this speaks of being humble-minded and thinking, you know what? My wife, she's better than me. I prefer her. My five-year-old kid, I'm the dad. I'm the, I'm the head of the home. I prefer my five-year-old kid. He's better than me. I prefer them. I, I'm esteeming Russell, my two-year-old girl, three-year-old Laney, better than myself. Let this mind, or excuse me, verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. So he's the source of all of this. He's the model who was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the filthy, embarrassing, excruciatingly painful death of the cross. Why should I esteem this joker is better than me because Jesus did it with you when he laid down his life on a Roman tree. That's our motivation behind this stuff. Comes from the gospel. Comes from the good news. We serve because he served first. In verse 9, God also exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have the example set before us that when you humble yourself, you'll be lifted up. Well, give me an example. Jesus humbled himself on the cross, was risen from the dead in great power and great glory, ascended into the heaven and wasn't kicked out of heaven when he got up there. What do you think you're doing up here? You've touched the earth. No, but rather the Lord says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he was obedient the whole time he was down there, even to the point of death. He gets to come in. He comes in. He won the victory. And so we follow Jesus's example. In Luke 14, even when you're invited to a party, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, come on up higher. What are you doing down there sitting at the kid table at Thanksgiving? <laughs> then you'll have glory in the presence of those that are sitting at the table with you. And you know, I used to think I was good at this. There was a while in youth ministry and I was serving a lot and I do a lot of the gross work as a youth pastor and stuff. And I've just noticed lately, like there's... There needs to be a, re a renewed heart to have this, you know, just lowliness of mind and just doing the hard stuff, doing the dirty work, not esteeming of myself is better than someone, but preferring them. Sorry, I read a lot of Luther this week, but can I just, one more, one more. He says, moreover, a man cannot show this honor to another unless he humbles himself and judges himself worthy of being put to shame. 
and that others are more deserving of honor than he is. That is, unless a man is humble, he does not prefer another, or he does prefer another in honor above himself. I like that because I judge myself worthy of dishonor. What am I worth? To be dishonored, that's what. And unless you humble yourself in like manner, you're never going to be able to have this type of Romans 10 humble preference love to your sister or your brother. And so we cry out, God, break us down. God, break our pride down. God, strip and chisel my kingdom of self down and build up the kingdom of God. This is a great service to the Lord to honor one another. Verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. My friend Adam called this verse a glowing ember in the New Testament. And I had to just kind of close my eyes and just read verse 11 and just just see the beauty in this verse, not lagging in diligence, being fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. Let's check out the Phillips translation and it's good. So I put it up there for you. Verse 11 in the Phillips translation says, let us not allow slackness to spoil our work and let us keep the fires of the spirit burning as we do our work for the Lord. Let us not allow slackness to spoil our work, but also keep the fires of the spirit burning. These are two legs in the spirit of the servant, all right? The first leg is that we wouldn't be lazy. Don't lag in diligence, all right? The other leg that keeps it balanced is that we're to be fervent in the spirit. And yes, I know what you're thinking. That is a P90X move. It's called the 80-20, all right? (laughs) Sweating already. Both legs should be operating in our workout for the Lord, not lagging in diligence, not lazy for the Lord, but also fervent, all right? There's tension in this verse. The temptation is to favor one leg over the other, but there's intention in the tension. As we see, there's an exhortation in the negative. Don't lack in diligence, This is a call to hard work. It's telling you, don't be lazy in serving the Lord. Don't be sluggish. There's an emphasis on practicality there. Be practical in serving the Lord. Stay up late for him. Wake up early for him. Labor in prayer for him. Serve him. Get it done. Work for Christ. But set next to that. And equally important is the exhortation to the positive, be fervent in spirit. Literally reads, boil for Christ. Work hard and boil for Christ. It's where we get the term, be on fire for Jesus. It's where those red t-shirts came from back at that high school camp. Be passionate. Let your blood boil for Jesus. As John Stott says, in telling the Romans to be aglow with the Spirit, as the RSV says, he's almost certainly referring to the Holy Spirit. And the picture is not so much of a glowing lamp as of a boiling, bubbling pot. I like that. We're told to be boiling and bubbling and fire and zealous for our God. And so here we have in verse 11, laziness contrasted with zeal. A lot of tensions in the scripture. We went through some of them in Romans 9 through 11. Tensions between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But there's intention in the tension. And we ask the question, is God sovereign or is man responsible? And the answer was yes. You didn't get that, but that's okay. From God's perspective, he's sovereign. And from our perspective, he's sovereign. And yet there's responsibility on man's side and outworking from what God has done. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, show that tension in that verse. Here we have another tension. Works versus empowerment by the Spirit. 
Yes. Works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Doctrine and hard work is the root. And practical outworking is the fruit. You won't have fruit without the root. And if the root doesn't bear fruit, what good is it? Jesus tells us it's good for nothing but to be cut off and thrown into the fire. We are to have hard working, deep doctrine, being diligent in studying the word, Paul tells Timothy, and also the zealous take the world for Christ mentality and heart and practice. We need both of those. And so the intention in the tension of verse 11, not lacking in diligence and fervent in the spirit, is so that both sides of these truth tensions will hold each other in check. And if someone just wants to be on fire with the Holy Spirit and just forget the doctrines, it's like, whoop, 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 whoop. Oops, I didn't, forgot that was there. Don't be lacking in diligence and in doctrinal diligence and in world, wordly diligence. But if someone is growing cold, and has just become religious like a Pharisee, whoop, 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 whoop. come back to the middle, man. Be fervent, be on fire with the Holy Spirit so that one would not be neglected or the other not used at all. They keep each other in line. Now, the goal of it all, what's the goal of not lagging intelligence and what's the goal of being on fire? The goal is, at the end of verse 11, serving the Lord. That's the goal here. And how do we serve the Lord? By not lagging in diligence. By not being lazy. The word here speaks of eagerness. There's a call to work here. Now, some of us in the church really need to hear this exhortation. Some of us in the church are lazy in serving the Lord and being in the word and being part of this body of believers in using your gifts in making disciples and being a disciples, you're lazy, okay? And there's a call for you today to come back to working hard because of his mercy. Work in the scripture is a biblical bent. God himself is a God of work. There was no fall when he worked for six days and created and then rested on the seventh. Work is not a curse, it's the dang weeds and thorns that come with working. That's part of the curse. Work is good. It's a biblical bent. It is good to be responsible. It is good to be practical. It is good to put effort into what God has called us to do as you're, as you're called to be a dad, as a mom, as a student, as an elder, as an employee and player. Whatever God's called you to do, it's good to be responsible. In your giftings, in your serving in the church, it's good to work hard. What area is that in your life? So you can apply this. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it. There's a call to that. Don't be lazy. It's good to be exhausted for Christ. It's good to be tired for Christ. There are many in this room that know that feeling. Pour themselves out. For the Lord, for his bride, it's good. And there's seasons for rest as well. You know, it's cool. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spends 57 verses preaching about the resurrection and how we as Christians who are in Christ are also going to be resurrected one day. Awesome, 57 verses. How does he conclude that section on the resurrection and the glory of eternity won by Jesus? He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the practical outworkings of the resurrection doctrine is that we would be abounding in the work of the Lord, laboring for the Lord. The conclusion is not just be lazy, sit back and relax. God doesn't need you anyway. He's going to come anyways. And you're, you know, it's not laziness. It's be vigilant, abound in work. 
work for Christ, for the kingdom, for the church. And all of this work, where are you saying work a lot? It's not contrary to grace, all right? It's because of grace. We're saved by grace, so everything we do is an outpouring and springs out in response to grace. Grace is not in competition to works. It's not in opposition or antithetical to works. All of our works are sourced from God's grace. It's a river that just torrents through our life and propels us to works. In that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says in a very Popeye-like saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Awesome, grace. That's what's made me what I am. It wasn't in vain. Grace, man, grace. So I labored more abundantly than all of them, but it wasn't even me. It was the grace of God in me. Because I know the doctrine of grace, I'm a missionary. I'm a church planter. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I'm a worship leader. I'm a children's ministry worker. You know, I, I call my brother out in his sin. I go over late at night and grieve with the woman whose husband just died. And then I provide and, and make a casserole for her for the next week. You know, by grace, I'm working now. Look what God's done for me. How can I not do that for my brothers and sisters that he's died for? This grace permeates me in such a, such a way that I am prepared to labor above all the other apostles is what Paul is essentially saying. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people. That's the good news of grace. God has worked for us to purify us and make us a special people. And the verse closes, zealous for good works. Grace moves us to work. It's a biblical bent to have a working heart. For Jesus. We're not lagging in diligence so that at the end of our lives we can look back and say, Gosh, I was spent for his kingdom that I'm going into for all of eternity. Chuck Smith wisely put it that we have one life to live and it soon will pass, and only what we've done for Jesus will last. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I have poured myself out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And I'm glad for it. Because of grace, pour yourself out for the kingdom, for the Lord, serving the Lord. If this was the only thing, though, that was described in verse 11, this working, this in service to Christ, we might tend to be a bit lopsided, a bit peg-legged in our service for the Lord. We can get dry, perched, without heart, Lots of works, but no heart. That was the problem with the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says, I know your works. You're not cold, you're not hot, you're just lukewarm. You're doing a bunch of stuff, but you're not on fire for me. And because of that, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Very strong graphic language of God's distaste for works with no passion. Works with no zeal. And so lest diligence be misused, we have that other leg there of zeal and of being on fire and having enthusiasm. It's okay to be enthusiastic about Jesus and be excited in serving the Lord. Again, the language means to boil. And it's used and described by some scholars as like the sound of water boiling on the stove. You know it. I mean, when that just starts cooking, those macaroni and cheeses are about to just get what's coming to them. And it's time. Blah, 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 blah. It's a great noise. You might not know it, but I was a welder for a while. And then I always loved when you just got a cold piece of steel and you just touch this thing to it, you know, you know, just on fire. And this cold piece of steel is like melting lava and popping and sizzling and on fire. And you're able to move it and turn it. It's hot. It's fervent. The language literally speaks of for solids to boil, 
for solids to boil. And maybe for you, you know, you're more of the diligent working side. Hardworking man, come to church with grease on your pants. You know, you got, you know, dirt under your fingernails and you just got off the tractor. Or what? Sorry, Adam. Uh, <laughs> and the word for you today is amen, good, and how about some passion with that? How about some fire so that when you're working, people look and say, I want that. I want that. Passion of heart. To seethe is another word for it, which means to hum and to roll for Jesus. Don't be scared of this word. Don't be scared of being on fire. Very biblical is what we're speaking of here. The Puritans, early church fathers in the Middle Age would use this one word. I'm going to share it with you in their everyday vocabulary. And it was the word ardency. Ardency. Be ardent for the Lord. And I like it. It's even better than enthusiasm. You know, enthusiasm sounds like something you get at a pep rally, you know. But if you don't get your full eight hours of sleep, it's like, you know. But ardency of the spirit, it's lasting. It's not based on external circumstances in your life. It's something that is brought by God himself into your life that you can be a witness to the world of the glorious gospel. Have an ardency for Christ. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army said, I like my religion like I like my tea. Boiling hot. Boiling hot. Micah's thinking minty? You know, no, boiling hot. That's how we like our religion. Boiling hot, on fire for the Lord. And it was John the Baptist that said, I indeed baptize with water in Matthew chapter 311, but there is one coming after me whose sandal straps I am not worthy to unleash, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And with fire. And when he was ascending into heaven, he told the disciples, you go into Jerusalem and you wait on me for the promise of the father is going to come and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses. You will be martyrs for me to the end of the world. Where does this fire come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit taking your life taking your life, coming upon your life, empowering your life. May God bring a new measure to Calvary Chapel of Crook County of this fervency, of this zeal. It's a good biblical bent to be on fire. High schoolers, I've seen revivals in cities, churches birthed and grown, drug dealers getting saved by just nerdy kids like me with buck teeth, big Adam's apple, and a rear end that can't keep his pants up high. God won't hear about Jesus. <laughs> Just because of the Holy Spirit. And so today, perhaps the word is for you to be a vessel that the Holy Spirit can empower and can use. And you can just tell him today, Lord, I don't know totally what that looks like. But I want to be on fire for you. I want to be on fire for you. The youth can be on fire for Jesus Ask him to set you ablaze, to light the tinder. Old women, I don't see any. Old men, no one, no one here? Okay, well, let's go down a little bit. Middle-aged, God can light you on fire today for him. He can bring emotion to your motion. Cry out to him. Here I am, Lord. You've brought me here today to speak into my life for such a time as this. For some, the word be diligent, quit being lazy. It's for you today, just as much as for others that it would say, hey, let the Lord light your fire. Let the Lord bring the passion. Be ardent. That we'd be delivered from sedentary, inactive religion that we would be aglow for our God by the Spirit of God. John Wesley, part of the Great Awakening Movement, described himself as a brand that had been plucked from the fire. What do you think he's saying there? 
I'm kind of a dull guy. No, what's he saying? I'm on fire. You know, it's not me. I'm nothing great. Just the spirit of God has just taken my life. I'm on fire. And yet, and yet, the other leg was equally strong in John Wesley's life. He had diligence in his life. Some called him obsessed. He would exactly structure his day in five-minute increments so that he would waste as little time as possible. And yet, on fire, right? Lord, work that ardency and diligence in this church. Another way to phrase this verse would be, be industriously on fire in serving the Lord. Industriously working, putting out, you know, the the product, putting out the gospel, making disciples on fire, doing it. Serving the Lord. Be passionately pragmatic in serving Christ. Some of us might say, you know what, I'm very practical, but I'm not very passionate. You're never going to see me cry. It's just who I am. So back off, Rory. And I just think, just say, Lord, is there anything you'd speak to me in this? Would you challenge me? It's the word, be fervent in spirit. Rory didn't make it up. Apostle Paul spoke it to us. All right? It's a good bent to be practical. But perhaps for those of you that are hardworking men and women, you might just say, Lord, I'm practical, but make me fervent in spirit that I might be both. For others, you're a little more persuaded naturally to have an emotional personality, uh, a, a personality that's naturally fervent, awesome. And you can say, Lord, I have passion. Make me practical. Make me practical, Lord. There's one commentary I was reading that I wouldn't just be like a balloon that's just like, woo, you know, but Lord, yeah, great, helium in the balloon, power in the balloon, but it's got the little string on it so that we can take the balloon where we want to go. Also not in my notes, dang it. And then we would have the wisdom of the Lord to put these things together, not lagging in diligence, not lazy. It's a word for us today. It's a word for you today, not lukewarm but on fire, it's a word for you today. Not in competition with each other, not opposition, not antithetical, but friends. They're friends in our lives. They keep us a good balance. We can have the worship team come on up and we're just gonna close in worship and waiting on the Lord, maybe with an extra song, Kendra, hopefully. Throw it in there. It can just be one that we've already done. But what we're going to do in this worship time is we are going to ask for a hard work ethic for Jesus that is motivated and empowered by his mercies and his grace. And we are going to ask for a passion and a zeal that he'd light us on fire for the purpose of serving the Lord. For the purpose of serving the Lord. We're going to take communion, and really this is where it comes down to, where we remember the death and the execution of Jesus, and that's the starting place. We remember the mercies and the grace of God, that he was brutally betrayed and beaten and scourged and whipped and stripped and murdered so that we wouldn't have to. There was substitutionary atonement for your sins at the cross. And by taking the elements of communion, what you're saying is, I take that atonement into myself, into my deepest being. It's in me, Lord, you're in me. I own what you've done. I receive what you've done. Come do what you've done in me. And that's where it starts. And then, He wants to work in you fruits of being connected to him. He wants to work in you diligence. Men that aren't reading your Bibles, quit being lazy. You're not praying with your wives, quit being lazy. 
you're not it, anything that the church provides to equip you for the work of the ministry so that people wouldn't be washed to and fro like a wave in the ocean, quit being lazy, okay? Quit making excuses. Some, hardworking, but you're cold, you're selfish in your labor, and you're not emulating Jesus when you're doing it. You're not doing it in love. You're not doing it in joy. There's no cheerfulness when you're serving. You're bitter about it. You're cold about it. God bring you fire. God bring you power. And you can ask the Lord for that today. And so before we take communion, we're gonna just do a song where we're just responding to the Lord today. And we're just gonna have a time where you can stand if you just feel convicted today by the Lord. On one end or the other, maybe both. Maybe you're not even saved today. And today you just wanna say, Lord, I, I take into me all that you did for me, forgiveness of sins and salvation and a relationship with you. If you sense the Lord has spoken to you today and in any of these areas, hypocritical love, not preferring others, not serving others, just stand where you're at. Don't stand if it's not you, but if you just wanna say, Lord, I hear you, I respond to you, I don't wanna be the same, empower me, Lord, to obey this word and we're just gonna have a time with uh, just the prayer team being up here. And just, if you want prayer, just for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on your life, just come on up, ask for prayer. If you want prayer to quit being lazy, come on up, ask for prayer. If you just, any of these areas, maybe you wanna be saved today and you just like to be led in, in how to do that, how to be saved, come on up. We'll You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.